Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and we'll go to the book of Judges, chapter 4. One last time in the book of Judges. This is it. So for the last uh, couple months, we've been walking through this really, uh, really fascinating uh, book in the Old Testament that tells this part of the story of God's people. And uh, we've kind of been looking at a f- kind of just chunks, case studies throughout the book of Judges, and uh, seeing what God might have to say to us through uh, this ancient, somewhat challenging, somewhat obscure uh, piece of early Jewish history. So um, I'll start by just kind of reminding us of a recap of what, what this book looks like. Um, rather than being a linear narrative, like most of the stories um, in the Bible and other places. <clears throat> By the way, the smoke's killing me. Should I just like mute my mic when I need to cough or is that a good situation back there? I'll do that. And we're back. Good. So instead of a linear narrative that kind of starts at the beginning and ends at the end, like most stories, the book of Judges is a cyclical narrative. And the storyteller tells the story in such a way that we're designed to see this pattern that reoccurs over and over throughout the story, emphasizing kind of the main point over and over again. So the the cycle looks like this. That Israel turns away from God to idols. And so this is the God who had called them, beginning with Abraham and his family, and said, I want you to be my people in the world. I want to use you, Abraham, and your family to begin this work of restoration, of putting the world back to rights. And through your family, all nations on earth will be blessed. And so God had called Israel from her earliest days essentially to be a missionary family, to be a community of his people that were demonstrating for the nations, for the world, what it looks like to live in faithful love with Yahweh, with the creator God. And so that was their purpose and their calling was to be God's people on earth. And the deal was that God would bless them, meaning pour his life and presence into them. And then he would call them to be a blessing to the nations, that they would be there to love, to serve, to give themselves for the good of the world. That was their calling. But what we see over and over again in this cycle is that it starts with Israel turns away from God. They turn away from Yahweh. And instead of influencing the nations towards God, they are influenced by the nations towards false gods and towards idols. And so we see that cycle several times in the book of Judges, that Israel is unfaithful to God. And begins to worship idols. And then as a result, oh man, this is going to be hard. God hands Israel over to oppressors where he essentially says, okay, if you don't want to follow me and live with me, then you're free to go. And they end up in several occasions in captivity, under oppression, um, under these foreign nations. And so what happens as a result down at the bottom Oh my gosh, Israel suffers under this foreign domination. So God says, okay, thy will be done to his people. And they get what they choose, and they're suffering under this domination, under oppression. And then we get this picture finally of God raising up a judge to deliver Israel. Judge in quotes, because it's not the way we would think about a judge. But really, it's a leader 
a military commander, um, a representative that God raises up to be kind of the ruler of his people. And so you see this pattern cyclically about six times in the book of Judges. The same story told over and over, but each time kind of with different characters in a different scene. But it's not just cyclical, it also has this movement downward, that each time the cycle repeats itself, it's like things get a little bit worse, right? Each time the judge that God raises, uh, that God raises up does a little bit of a worse job than the judge before them. And so the cycle repeats itself, and as the picture of Israel gets darker and darker, this last piece of the cycle of God faithfully pursuing and providing for his people gets brighter and brighter, you start to see how relentless, how gracious, how long-suffering, and how truly loving God is towards his people that even as they're spiraling downward, further and further away from him and the life he's called them to, that he continues to pursue, he continues to provide, he continues to show up over and over again. And when you get to the end of the book, after this cycle's repeated many times and spun downward, you really are left with this picture of Israel's complete failure to the mission that God has given them, that they have completely missed it, but that somehow God, through it all, has been accomplishing his purposes through really messed up situations, through really messed up people, and all of, uh, a lot of the pictures of violence and of war and of murder and all that stuff that we see in the book of Judges, even among those that God is using, it doesn't necessarily mean God's endorsing those means of violence, but it simply means that he is so determined to accomplish his purposes on earth through people that he's willing to use <clears throat> even the most broken, messed up people and situations, and somehow to work out his plans through them. Which is good news for all of us, right? That we understand that even though our lives are broken, even though we all have sketchy pasts, right? We all have places in our lives that are in need of, of transformation, that that doesn't stop God from accomplishing his purposes in us and through us. And so as I said a couple weeks ago, the Bible really in a lot of ways is an ungodly book, right? The first two chapters and the last two chapters give us a picture of what looks like when God is king, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, but all the chapters in between from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19 are a picture of a broken, fallen world that's affected deeply by sin and by injustice, by evil, by corruption, and by idolatry. And that's the world in which God is accomplishing his purposes, which is encouraging for us as well, as it's the world that we continue to live in. And so this morning, we're going to look at one final judge in our kind of uh, survey through this book, and it's the Judge Deborah, the only female judge in, in this book. And uh, Ken mentioned a few weeks ago that he was planning on doing this, but he kind of got rerouted by the Spirit that morning, and so we're going to come back around and, and pick this one up. And it's a, it's a really fascinating story. And I'll just say up front, out of all the judges, uh, Deborah's, um, she's better than the other ones, 
Um, I'll just put it that way, okay? So she's one of the shining lights, and it's early in the book. It's early in the cycle, and so things get worse from here. Um, But we do have a glimpse of a woman of incredible godly character, a woman of influence, a woman of deep wisdom, which we'll see, and ultimately a woman who is committed to faithfully serving God uh, no matter what it costs. And so uh, we'll get to look at her uh, this morning. And so read with me, starting in verse uh, 1 of Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Haggiam because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at this time. So we'll stop there for a moment, but I want you to just see that this cycle that we are talking about of Israel turning from God, ending up in the hands of oppressors, crying out to the Lord, and then God raising up in a judge. That's those first four verses of chapter four exactly, right? This exact pattern has now set the stage. So this cycle is about to continue, okay? So let's learn about Deborah. She held court, verse five, under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Okay, we'll stop there for now. So the author introduces us to this woman, Deborah, who we're told is a prophet. So a prophet is someone who God calls out to be his mouth to his people and to the nations. So all throughout the scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, you see these prophets being raised up by God. And their job is essentially is to listen to what God's saying and then to say what God is saying. And it doesn't always go well. The role of prophet was a a tormented role in many ways because what God wanted to say oftentimes to his people in rebellion is not what his people wanted to hear. And so to be a prophet, it took incredible character and it took an incredible determination to be faithful to say what God is saying regardless of the cost. So if we contrast somebody like Deborah with other Old Testament prophets, somebody like Jonah, for example, where God says, hey, Jonah the prophet, here's what I want you to say to these people in Nineveh. And Jonah goes, no, I think I'm going to go a long way the other direction instead, right? We get the pressure that this, this wasn't always a popular role. But she's a prophet, and God has raised her up, we're told, to be the, Israel, the, the leader of Israel at this time. Okay? And so he gives, God gives Deborah this word for a guy by the name of Barak. And Barak's living in this other, this other town about 75 miles down the road. And God says, I want you to call Barak to come to you, and here's the words I want to speak to you. And so that's what we just read in verses 6 and 7. 
Deborah summons Barak. He comes to her court under this, this palm tree, and she says, here's what God's saying. I want you to pull together an army of 10,000 troops, and I want you to go, and I want you to fight this battle. Okay? And so <clears throat> that's, that's her first task, is simply to listen to God and then to say what God is saying. Now, how does Barak respond? We'll move on to verse 8. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went with him. Okay? And so Barak, again, 75 miles down the road, gets this call that Deborah, the judge of Israel, would like to speak with you, and she's got a job for you. He gets up, he travels to her, and she says, here's what I want you to do. And he kind of goes, okay. Um, I could do that, but only if you do it with me. I'll go, but only if you go with me. Interesting response. And then she replies by saying something even more interesting, and that is, okay, yeah, I will go with you, but look here in verse 6, or in verse 9, sorry. The honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And so here's where this interesting dynamic within the narrative arises. And I think that the author means for us to compare and contrast these two leaders. You have Deborah on the one hand and Barak on the other. And the question that arises in the midst of the planning for this mission is who is going to get the glory? Whose name is going to be associated with this victory? Who is going to be remembered? And for whatever reason, Deborah is able to discern in that moment that this conversation is essential for this mission to carry out. That apparently she's discerning something within Barak that necessitates her to confront his motives, his ego, his selfish ambition, and remind him that in the end, if we win this battle, it's not going to be your name that's remembered. Ultimately, she would say God is going to hand over the Canaanites to us, but specifically she says it's going to be the hands of a woman. The hands of a woman. Now, we would assume that she's referring to herself, right? And that you kind of, at this point in the story, are going, now Barack and Deborah are both arguing about who's going to get their name on this thing. Who's going to be remembered as the brave, courageous, victorious uh, Israelite leader. But as the story goes on, interesting enough, Deborah's not actually talking about herself at all. She's talking about another woman. We'll skip down in the story a little bit just because we don't have time to get into all the details. But eventually, as Barak agrees and as Deborah goes along with him, 
We'll pick up in verse 16. And just so you know, this is where the book of Judges goes Game of Thrones on you. Barak pursued the chariots and armies as far as Harasheth Haggiam, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her, and if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. Pause right there. Don't read verse 21 yet. Okay? So in the midst of this battle, the Canaanite commander, this, uh, this Sisera guy, has fled because his army's been overtaken. And we get the sense that there's some sort of family friendship between his family and this woman, Jael. And so she says, hey, come on into, my, into the tent. I'll take care of you. And she gets him some milk. She makes him a bed. She covers him with a blanket. And she's standing watch at the door, and he falls asleep. Now, verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground And surprise, he died. (laughs) Just then, Barak came in in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent bag through his temple, again, dead. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Okay. Do you remember that from Flannel Graph or Sunday School, anything like that? I think we might have skipped over that one. <laughs> this is a crazy story, right? This is a crazy story. Okay, so she says, come on in, I'll protect you, I'll vouch for you. He falls asleep, and then she drives a tent peg through his head into the ground, and of course, he's dead. Okay, at that point, when this commander's been killed, who shows up in verse 22? It's Barak, right? This guy who, from the beginning, was determined to have his name associated with the victory, to be the one that would kill this commander, he shows up a little bit too late and the work is already done. So again, back in, in the earlier part of the chapter, in verse 9, Deborah says, Barak, you're not going to get the glory for this. It's going to be a woman. And at first we assume she's speaking of herself and that they're in this little kind of ego war. But instead what we see is she's talking about some entirely obscure, unknown young woman who's actually going to be the one who accomplishes this, this, uh, this victory. So here's what's interesting, this whole dynamic between Deborah and Barak. And these two characters that are both in a position uh, before God where they have to figure out, not only am I going to do what God has called me to do, but what's the motivation behind it all? 
And where does my ego, where does my reputation, where does my legacy fit in to faithfully doing what God has called? Now here's what's fascinating is there's a whole bunch of stuff. I know I butchered a couple of these names and said a few of them different ways, different times. Uh, I'm just like you in that. But one of the places that stands out of all these kind of Hebrew names and places and stuff like that is in verse 6, that Barak is from this place called Kadesh in Naphtali. And several times the author makes sure to remind us that that's where Barak is from, Kadesh. And Deborah sent for Barak. He came from Kadesh. And then she said, I want you to grab this army of soldiers from Kadesh. And he said, I want you to come with me to Kadesh. So what's up with this place? Well, the basic thing that you need to know is that Kadesh was essentially what would be known as a refuge city in ancient Israel. And so it's a place where people who had committed manslaughter could go to seek asylum. In other words, if you had accidentally killed somebody, you would flee to Kadesh and you would be able to live there at peace. Removed from the rest of society and just kind of a place that you would be banished to live out kind of this life as an exile from your people. And that's where Barak is at the beginning of this story. Now, we're not told his backstory or why he was there or what he was doing. But we do get this clear sense that that's not where he was supposed to be. Barak was one of Israel's leading military commanders. And Israel is in a time of oppression in a time of crisis, in a wartime, critical time for their nation. And where is Commander Barak? He's 75 miles down the road in Kadesh, in this city of refuge. Our equivalent would be during a wartime in the United States, our, Department of, our uh, Secretary of Defense is sitting on a beach in Mexico with a pina colada. And you're kind of going, no, that's not okay. That's not where you need to be right now. You need to be in your office. Country needs you. But instead, we have Barak down in Kadesh, sitting on a beach, doing we don't know what, but clearly not what he's supposed to be doing. <clears throat> and then he gets this call, or really, it's more of a call out. But Deborah didn't just randomly choose this guy, Barak, but apparently it would have been clear to her and everyone else that he had a job to do. And so by her summoning him to her, her court, it was her way of calling him out or confronting that he had abandoned his people, that he was being lazy, that he was being a coward, essentially. And she calls him out and says, we need you to show up and to do this job and to lead this mission. And again, he comes. And so I think what we start to get here is this picture within Barak of somebody who's happy to do his own thing and to carry on with an easy and comfortable life until his name is on the line. 
until his honor is on the line. And so here's, here's what I see when I look at Barak, is that he is a man who's more concerned with his reputation than he is with his character. More concerned with his reputation than with his character. He's happy to live it up down in the city of refuge, take it easy while his country is in crisis. But as soon as his name gets brought up, he gets up and he goes and he starts to do something. Which is why, the only reason it makes sense to me, De- Deborah would go, just so you know, this isn't about your honor. You're not going to get the glory for this. He's more concerned about how he looks to others than he is about how he actually is. He's more concerned with maintaining an image and making a name for himself, his reputation, than he is about what's actually happening within his heart and mind and life. And all of a sudden, we start to see a glimpse of ourselves in this story, don't we? That this temptation to value and pursue reputation over character, I think is something that's just so present within human nature in the world we live in. Something that we all are confronted with. Am I more concerned with looking good than I am with actually being and doing good? Am I more concerned about the way I appear to others than I am with actually being faithful to the life God has called me to? I'll tell you firsthand, as a pastor, this is one of the battles that, that I and others in this role face over and over again. And I'm sure you understand why. My job is essentially to be a professional Christian right? Like, I don't have any other job. You guys support me and our other pastors to be Christians for a living and to help other people do that, right? That's an intimidating job title, professional Christian. And I'll be the first to tell you, I've been in this game 19 years now, is the easiest, the easiest of all vocations to fake it. There is a temptation on a daily basis to maintain the image that I'm doing better than I I am, that I'm more faithful and devoted than I am, that I'm more loving and committed to Christ than I am. I know all about this. And maybe you're not a professional Christian, but there's definitely going to be places in your life where this struggle shows up as well that you're tempted to pretend that you're doing better than you actually are. That you're tempted to pursue reputation over develop character. And it's an easy trap to fall into because the truth is, in many cases, not always, but in many cases, reputation can be quickly earned, can't it? You can make a good first impression You can have some sort of success or some sort of highlight in your life, in your work, whatever it is that you're talking about, and you can quickly begin to earn a good reputation. 
But reputation is also something that's quickly lost, isn't it? We've all seen that happen to people in our lives that we're disappointed, we're let down when we find out what's really going on behind the scenes. So reputation, quickly earned but also quickly lost. Character, on the other hand, takes years to develop. And it hardly ever draws attention to itself. It looks like quiet, obedient, faithful, service, devotion, discipleship, doing the hard work of paying attention to our own hearts, to our own stories, to our own motivations, being confronted by this question of, am I doing this for my glory, for my honor, for my ego, or am I truly loving, am I truly serving, am I truly being faithful to God for the sake of his glory? And I think this shows up at church, right? In fact, Christians have this, uh, this reputation, don't we? For being hypocrites. For going around pretending that we're doing better than we actually are. For putting on a smile, washing up our kids, showing up on Sundays. Like good little Christians, when deep inside or our life at home, the other six, to, six days is a wreck. Right? We have that reputation. But it doesn't just show up at church. It shows up at home as well. It shows up at work for sure. All kinds of dynamics in the workplace where people are fighting over who's going to get the credit. Maybe you've had a situation like that. You accomplished a, a project or got something done or had an idea and a coworker or a boss or somebody ends up taking credit for it in the end. Incredibly frustrating of course, but I think it's moments like that that God's interested in harnessing for the sake of our development into the character of Christ. And so my first question for you this morning is simply for you to ask, where in your life are you tempted to care more about your reputation than your character? Where does that show up for you? And know that that's something that God wants to call your attention to this morning. He doesn't just want us to go around looking good. He actually wants to form us into people who are good and who do good in his name. And so for Barak, that's what we see. This man who's incredibly concerned that his legacy and his honor is going to be attached to this victory. And if you read through the story, he just, he clearly, clearly isn't the hero, right? He isn't even there when the tent peg thing goes down. By the way, Kip, you missed your cue. He was going to yell, nailed it, when I read that part, but we missed it. He isn't even there. And Deborah, who we think maybe is fighting for honor in the first place, she gives it away as well and lets this girl, J.L., do the work. Now, chapter 5 of Judges, we won't read it, but the whole chapter is a song. And this is actually one of the earliest pieces of Hebrew literature that we have. 
So the authors are writing the historical part of Judges, and then they place in this song, which go back and read it later. It's interesting. It's her retelling this whole story uh, as in the form of lyrics. And um, Barak barely gets mentioned at all, right? Ultimately, Deborah doesn't see Barak or Jael or herself as the hero of this story. Ultimately, this is a worship song. This is a song of praise. This is a song devoted to the glory of God. And her rejoicing in the fact that she got to be part of what God was doing. Now again, I know this is messy with murder and all kinds of violence and military stuff. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines, right? But somehow in this whole thing, she's able to trace out the work and the faithfulness of God. And in this story, she goes, this is not about me and my glory and my legacy and my reputation. I am simply here to serve the true king, the true judge. And so it's a song of worship. And so the point of this passage that I want to leave you with today is that God uses available people who aren't worried about their reputation to accomplish his purposes. God uses available people who aren't worried about their reputation to accomplish his purposes. God raises up this woman, raises up this other woman, and they aren't worried about whose name is going to be attached to this thing. They simply are faithful and obedient to what God has put in front of them, regardless of the cost to themselves or even to their name. Which is incredibly good news for us, isn't it? It's not just epic, brilliant, flawless, amazing individuals that God wants to use, but it's people just like you and me with all the sketchiness in our past, all the flaws that are still in our character, if he says, if you will simply trust me and listen and obey, then I want to work out my purposes in your life and through you. And it takes a huge step of faith, doesn't it? Because our reputation is something we hold on to dearly. But what God proves over and over and over again is this that he is always faithful to handle the consequences of our obedience. Sometimes the thing God calls us to do is hard. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes it takes a lot of work that no one will ever see or notice or appreciate. God calls us to do hard things. And we're fearful of what's going to happen. What if I do what God's asking me to do? What are people going to think? What are people going to say? God is faithful to handle the consequences of our obedience. Invites us to trust him and to listen and to obey. So one quick story that came to mind for me as I was wrestling through this stuff this week. Several years ago, um, God led, led the way for Jen and I to develop a friendship with a family in our community. And I've told you about him uh, at different times before, but he was an atheist, 42-year-old, professor of nuclear engineering. 
he and his wife both had PhDs, and they were dating at the time when we met. She was a believer, and he wasn't. And he and I had grown to become good friends, and he was deeply interested in, in pursuing Christianity and learning about Jesus. And he was also deeply interested in this, in this Christian woman. And uh, at one point in our relationship, he said, we've decided to get married, and we're wondering if you would be willing to do our wedding. Yeah. And I've been working incredibly hard throughout the course of this relationship to faithfully present a picture of what discipleship looks like. Right? Again, I'm, I'm a professional Christian. This is what I do. Okay? So I'm trying to show him what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he's, we're moving towards each other in relationship. He's moving towards Christ. And he goes, I want, you, I want to know if you'll be willing to do our wedding. Now, here's the dilemma for me. I have a biblical conviction that believers and non-believers don't go together in marriage. Okay? So I'm, I will do weddings for two non-Christians, and I'll do weddings for two Christians. But I can't do a wedding between a Christian and a non-Christian. Okay? That's one of my biblical convictions as a pastor. And so I'm in a spot of going, if I tell him that, that I won't do your wedding because you're not a Christian, then he's going to think I'm judgmental. He's going to think I'm narrow-minded. He's going to think I'm a hypocrite and all this kind of stuff. And all the progress that we've made in his journey towards Christ is going to be, is going to be ruined. Right? And so struggled with it, wrestled with it, prayed, tried to find a way around it within my own conscience and convictions. And in the end, I called him and I said, hey, I can't do it and here's why. And took him, you know, to several places in Scripture that give this picture of uh, an unequally yoked vision of marriage. And I go, so yeah, my understanding of the Bible is that uh, a believer shouldn't knowingly marry an unbeliever. And I just kind of waited for him to go, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, right? Instead, he goes, oh, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Of course you can't do it then, right? He's like, I never would have asked you if I knew that the Bible said you shouldn't do that. I wouldn't expect you to violate your conscience or violate the teachings of the Scripture in order to accommodate me. And he's like, yeah, that's totally cool. And he goes, will you come to our wedding? I said, absolutely. <laughs> right? They ended up getting married. He ended up coming to Christ, baptized him. They're, they're some of our best friends today. Um, Obviously, just a small little weird moment in the professional Christian life, just giving you a glimpse into how some of this stuff plays out. And for me, it felt risky. It felt dangerous. And in some ways, it even felt unloving to say no to my friends. But with conviction and an attempt to be a faithful and obedient, I did, and, uh, and God was faithful to handle the consequences of that obedience. And so there's going to be places in your life, even this week, where you have a sense, a nudging, a calling from the Spirit. And maybe to do something hard. So we know what it feels like to be Barack. Now one of the glimpses, as, as we close, that this story gives us of Jesus is these words in verse 9. Where Barack says, I don't want to do it, but I'll go if you go with me. And Deborah responds, certainly I will go with you. 
which just reminds me exactly of the kinds of words that Jesus speaks to his followers later in this story, right? He's going, yeah, this life is going to be one marked by suffering. This is going to be a life of taking up your cross and following me. This is going to be a life of doing hard things. And you are going to constantly be tempted to pursue reputation over character. This is going to be hard. But Jesus says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Everything I have is yours. I'm giving you my spirit. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my name. I'm inviting you into my relationship with the Father so that your identity and your reputation is eternally secure with the only one it really matters. So instead of fearfully going around worrying about what other people are thinking of you, know what the Father thinks of you. That he loves you. He's impressed with you. He's committed to you. He wants you. And when we get that, when we believe that, it frees us up to say, I don't care if anybody notices. I don't care if I get the glory. I'm going to do the thing that God's called me to do, whether people are going to like it or not. One of the ways that Jesus has promised to be with us is through the bread and the cup. That this isn't simply a memorial. This isn't simply a symbol but we believe that there's an actual spiritual presence of Christ in these elements. Can't explain it, don't understand it, but by faith we receive it. And so this morning I want to invite you to come to the table, to take the cup, take the, the bread, take it into yourself, receive the presence of Jesus again. And what I really want is to encourage you not just to come through, grab it, and go, but actually to take a moment at the table and ask that question again. Where am I tempted to pursue reputation over character? Where are you wanting God to form the, the, the life of Jesus in me? Where, as I receive this bread and cup, do you want to flush out sin and pride and evil and instead fill it with love and justice and hope? That's the invitation this morning. So come, take as long as you want. We've got tables all over the place. And if you want to spend a few minutes there praying, you're welcome to. Also, we'll have people in the back by the exit signs that would love to pray with you. If there's a place in your life where you're in need of prayer, somebody who needs healing, uh, somewhere that's in need of peace or reconciliation, if there's something that you're, you're worrying about or struggling with, they would love to pray with you. So why don't you stand with me, and uh, we'll close in a time of response. Our Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you are faithful to handle the consequences of our obedience. That you will use available people to accomplish your purposes in the world. And that you have chosen unlikely people like us to be part of what you're doing. And we so deeply long for a life of joy, a life of significance, a life of meaning. And we're so easily drawn into the temptation to simply put up a facade and to pretend 
and to maintain an image instead of actually going to the places with you that you're inviting us to go. So Father, I pray for myself, for each one of my brothers and sisters and friends that are here this morning. We pray that you would help us fight against this temptation and by faith receive our identity from you and you alone. Would your opinion of us be the only thing that matters? Would faithfulness to what you're saying and calling us to do be the, the thing that drives our everyday life? And most of all, Father, we're thankful for the gift of your Son who laid down his life that we might find a whole new one with you here and now and for all eternity. We celebrate your presence with us this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen.